Everything about the prince suggested that the couple was also Australopithecus afarensis. In due course, a brilliantly produced diorama in the American Museum of Natural History in New York showed the couple walking through the desolate landscape of volcanic ash, the volcano still smoking on the horizon. The Australopith female's head is turning, turned. She looks slightly alarmed, as if she had just spotted the museum visitor through the glass, and the Australopith male is looking forward, resolute, his arm resting, possessively or affectionately or both, across her shoulders. It is somehow a poignant scene for many who see it, even endearing. One can feel the connection between the two Australopiths and between them and oneself. But not if one is a feminist scholar with a different interpretation of such matters. Paleontologist Adrian Zillman of the University of California at Santa Cruz was one of the most vocal to protest. The diorama struck her immediately as derivative of the expulsion from Eden, and everybody knows that that was all Eve's fault. The arm draped controllingly over the woman's shoulders was sexist. Not only that, but the diorama selected the two-person interpretation of the scene over the three-person version, simply to make the male dominant point. Quote, the concept of women in evolution, she wrote, remains encased in the glassed-in Old Testament diorama held down by a paleolithic glass ceiling. Unquote. By the 1980s, when this tempest blew up, pronounced sexual dimorphism such as that shown in the diorama was taken to be the sign of a society of animals in which males fight over control of the females, as with chimpanzees, meaning that the toughest male is profoundly dominant. Here, then, one could see the primate seeds of the patriarchy already supposedly in place more than three million years ago, according to the American Museum. Indeed, both the artist and the curator who combined to produce the museum's all-too-persuasive diorama were men. But there was room for skepticism of the actual science involved, as well as outrage over biased male assumptions. Zillman forcefully questioned the large male and small female hypothesis that was rifed in the, the diorama and assumed in the scientific descriptions of Lucy and her kin. She insisted that the footprints could just as well have been those of a parent and a smaller teenage offspring. Also, perhaps, all these different afferences finds, in fact, represented more than one species, and she challenged even the designation of Lucy as female. In fact, 
Johansson, when questioned about this, pointed out that there was no way to sex the fossil by its pelvis or other characters revealed in the fossil remains, except by their very smallness. She was a she because she was small. Such questioning has always been a valued, even the crucial future of science of any kind, and in this case it has forced the field of human paleontology to re-examine many cherished ideas, concepts, and reconstructions of the past particularly those notions that have until recently rendered prehistoric women as the invisible sex. The feminist discomfort with traditional ideas has done the great service of setting the field actively looking for women and their works and their role in the evolution of humanity. In such epochs as that of Lucy and especially before her time, the task is almost superhumanly difficult. That a question remains to this day of what sex Lucy really was suggests the difficulty of sorting out even which fossils were female and which male. Indeed, Lucy has also been dubbed Lucifer in some quarters. Some notable gains have been made, however, thanks to the very fact that that questions about sex have now, after more than a century, been asked. The Trail of the Astralopiths The first astralopith to be found was an infant, called the Taung baby, or child. Its sex was undeterminable. Its skull was found in the fall of 1924 in the Taung limestone quarry in South Africa, by Raymond Dart, a neuroanatomist by training. The skull was very much like that of an infant ape, but Dart perceived some human-like features named it Australopithecus africanus anyway, southern ape of Africa, and then proceeded to annoy the world of British paleontology by writing a paper without British help or consultation pegging his find as ancestral to humans, that is, a hominid. The Brits rejected the hominid notion. Piltdown man was a better candidate, they thought, and so was pecking man. Recently found in Asia, where opinion of the day held, mankind had arisen. Not in Africa. Never mind that Darwin himself had said that Africa was probably the cradle of humanity. The quarry also yielded various species of animal bone that appeared to have been sharpened, and Dart assumed that the Australopithecines had used these to attack and kill prey. But having been scorned by British scientists, he went back to neuroanatomy, believing nonetheless from his researches that humans were inherently aggressive. He was backed up on this by another medical man, Robert Broom, a Scot who turned to paleontology late in life, moved to South Africa, and eventually found many other Australopith fossils, including a very robust one, meaning bigger and heavier than most, which he was able to show had walked upright. By 1946, 
Broome's researches and the support of a British anthropologist, W.E. Legros Clark, had persuaded the world that astralop- astralopiths were indeed hominids, vindicating Dart and also his gloomy view of these ancient ancestors. It was generally agreed that Astra- Australopithecus was a savage hunter, armed with a sharp pointed bones and using them to kill even his own kind. After all, some skulls had holes in them, signs of murder. Soon there arose the idea of the killer ape. After the huge scale horrors of World War II, people in general had a pretty discouraging take on human nature, and scholars and writers in the field of human evolution were not immune. An American playwright, Robert Ardry popularized the notion of early man the killer in such popular books as African Genesis, while the scholarly German biologist Conrad Lorenz, in his book On Aggression, made the case that humans, like many other animals, were hardwired to be horrible to each other. In 1968, the opening scene of Stanley Kubrick's hugely popular science fiction film 2001, A Space Odyssey, brought the message to a far wider audience that weapons of aggression were the very hallmark of mankind. Our hominid past looked pretty grim, and of course basically without females, though a role for them in reproduction of yet more murderous males was assumed if largely unspoken. The next phase of the quest for Australopiths and their nature took place more to the north, specifically in Alduvai, George, in Kenya, under the direction of the aforementioned Leakies, indefatigable hunters of human fossils. Louis Leakey himself tended to be a splitter in these affairs and usually announced a new find as surely being a new species along the trail. Many of these finds have since been lumped into the Australopithecine genus. It became clear that there were many species of Australopiths, some of them contemporaneous. For example, smaller gracile ones called Australopithecus africanus, as were many of Darts and Broom's finds, lived alongside a bigger, heavier version now usually called either Australopithecus robustus, or its original name, Paranthropus. One feature of A. robustus was large teeth with a thick covering of animal, and the dental wear confirmed that this species depended mostly on tough plant foods that required a lot of heavy grinding to be edible. Leakey thought of him as Nutcracker Man. On the other hand, the smaller teeth of the Australopithecus africanus suggested a more generalized eater, with perhaps some meat in her diet. Up and down the great African rift valley, Australopiths of various kinds were turning up from the late 1950s into the early 1970s. These finds made mincemeat out of the long-held idea that with the exception of that much later dead-ender 
Neanderthal man, there was a single direct lineage of humankind. Instead, here were various species, experiments along the path, many of them inhabiting the world in company with one another. Today, some scholars see as many as seven different species of astralopiths, stretching from South Africa north into Ethiopia and Chad. These all fall into two categories, the gracile and the robust, but no one has been able to show that one category led to the next. Instead, there seem to have been various conversions of each category through time. The astralopiths existed for more than, from more than three million years ago to about a million years ago, a long and successful run indeed.